Okay, today my guest is Professor Glenn Oetker. I'll keep my introduction short to maximize our uh, time with him. In the next 30 minutes or so, we'll talk about Glenn as a person. Professor Oetker is a thought leader and an esteemed scholar, and finally is a mentor to many patients students and junior faculty. For the sake of time, I'll skip many of his accomplishments and give you a very quick snapshot. Professor Oetker's research addresses how firms can innovate to address growing demands that contribute to more broadly to society. Recently, he expanded into clean energy and sustainability. His professional experience and research includes Japanese business practices in a law firm, serving as international policy analyst for NASA, and as Japanese information specialist for GE, IBM, and Ford. I'm very curious about that one. <laughs> he is an associate editor for SMJ, uh, the Strategic Management Re Review and sits on the editorial review boards of Org Science, Strategic Organization, and Strategic Science. He has received many awards for his research and teaching, such as the Outstanding Editorial Board Member Award from the SMJ, Stephen Schrader Best Paper Award from AOM, Free Press Best Dissertation Award from AOM BPS Division, now the STR Division. Thank you, Glenn, for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. First, uh, what did you want to become when you were a child? It completely depended on the day. I, I spent a while trying to remember this. Um, and really, it just completely varied on the day. I don't think I ever had anything settled. And where did you grow up? Uh, Central Illinois in the U.S., so in a little farm town of about 5,000 people. And from Illinois to Melbourne, how did you get there? Oh, that was a journey. Um, from Illinois? Uh, had the chance to visit Japan in my senior year of high school because my father uh, had been invited by one of his former students. My father was a professor who lived in Japan. Uh, I got to accompany as a family member. Uh, and that sort of launched me on a journey. I went to college, uh, a little college called Earlham College in Indiana that had a really great Japanese studies program. Um, had a fellowship that brought me back to Asia. Then uh, headed out well, got a master's in library science at Illinois, went to Washington, D.C., worked there for six years, um, and then Ph.D. at Michigan, back to Illinois for 10 years as a professor, Arizona State for seven, and then here for the last four and a half. And how do you choose, I mean, I can't understand academia because of your father, but how do you choose a strategy, international strategy? and uh, international related topics in uh, to, to study? So, so there was the Japanese part um, in that I had always been sort of intrigued because it had been different. Um, Shogun had just come out. I was probably a little desperate to <laughs> escape the cornfields. Um, but, um, and then I had the chance to visit with my dad uh, to Japan. So that was certainly a big piece of it. What really led me back to academia was my last job in Washington, D.C. Uh, was with the law firm Dewey Ballantyne in the international trade law practice. Um, I'm not a lawyer, but I headed a small little research group that looked at developments in Japanese uh, business practices, policy, et cetera. And a lot of the work we were doing was for Kodak. And uh, their main goal was increasing access to the Japanese photographic film and paper market. But we actually were able to teach Kodak 
headquarters a fair amount about how the Japanese market was working, much of which we learned by talking to their Japanese employees. And they had been in Japan for over 50 years with you know a slight interruption for World War II. Um, I don't think they were xenophobic. Uh, they certainly were very bright. Um, no less well-organized than your average multinational. And so I was really intrigued by what was it about how they had entered Japan that meant there was this real information gap between the knowledge that was held in their Japanese offices and their U.S. offices or global offices and headquarters. Hmm. Um, they weren't interested in paying for us to answer that particular question. So uh, headed back to academia, uh, got my Ph.D., and the question that I, I brought in was just what I described, and is is pretty common. That's not the question I came out with. Uh, when you talk to GE, IBM, Ford, uh, and also NASA, uh, are these the questions that uh, they, they were asking? Are they similar types of questions? At yeah, the time? And, yeah. And so to be clear, the work with GE, et cetera, the, those were clients. When I was at my various at, at Scancy to see, which was a consultancy, um, Dewey Valentine um, in the time at NASA. I, this was when Japan was the up and coming big competitor to economically, technologically, and firms realized they just didn't understand what was happening in the Japanese market. They wanted to be able to tap into it. They didn't understand where the comparative advantage of some of the Japanese competitors were coming from. So it really was questions of how do we better understand the Japanese market, particularly the, the innovative end of it. Okay. Uh, something that is not on your CV that people might find interesting about you. Uh, sorry, I, I speak Japanese, not very well anymore, unfortunately, but uh, I was a Japanese studies major. So I took that interest and, and took it into my undergrad. Uh, I've had the opportunity to live in Japan, to study the language for seven years total. Um, and, uh, you know, there's no reason you would know that to, to interact. So that's something that I have, um, it's been fun. Uh, if you could do it all over again, what's the second best career path for you? Mm, quite possibly computer programming. I, I really like that that side of the job as a scholar, the the programming that goes with data cleaning and statistical analysis and and pushing that forward. Mm -hmm. um, I was actually accepted into the PhD program in mathematics at Illinois. Decided not to do it, and that was one of the best decisions I've I've ever made. Um, because while um, I'm probably more comfortable with math than the average person, I'm nowhere good enough to um, compete with other people in a PhD program. So okay. that that was a choice not taken. That was a very good idea. But the computer programming side of it uh, would have been fun. Uh, what's your biggest passion? Um, you, you personally, it's my family. Um, I've, I've got a wonderful family. Um, you know, love spending time with them. Uh, professionally, uh, it's really over the last 15 years, really bringing together my work and strategy in international business around this challenge of sustainability 
um, environmental sustainability in particular. And so I'm really, really very passionate about using the power of business to improve the well-being of our planet. Uh, and more than just that, really our society. Okay, moving to Melbourne, uh, did it make a change in your uh, outlook to research, outlook to teaching, uh, research productivity? Um, yes, and uh, I think anyone who's considering an international move should know uh, you'll lose even more time than you do with any interinstitutional move, just because there's so much to figure out. Um, at the same time, I found it really invigorating to be in a new setting, to have new colleagues and uh, new questions. And that has all been really helpful. And one of the things I've really enjoyed is because Australia is so much smaller, you know, under 30 million people, there's an opportunity to have a much larger impact than I was able to have at either Illinois or Arizona State. Um, you know, we, we've been through through the Center for Sustainability and Business, which I founded at Direct. We've trained um, 300, well, all 300 of Bain's consultants in Australia on ESG. We've trained several hundred of the um, top bankers at one of the big four banks uh, around climate and its impact on business. And that sort of translation of research into impact is, um, I, I found it much easier to do here. And that, that's that been really rewarding. Great. About uh, research in general, how do you explain your research to uh, laymen who don't read uh, SMJ, JIBS, uh, AMJ. And how do you explain the importance of your research? Yeah, so it's kind of evolved over time, uh, hopefully in a logical fashion, but but I will admit that my research statement when I went up for tenure was the single greatest act of post hoc rationalization I've ever been involved in. <laughs> Somehow I had to take everything I'd done and make it a research stream. Um, but flashing back to that, um, originally I was really interested in how the institutions in a country, its courts, how people do business, norms, et cetera, affected how firms partner with each other and how they innovate. Um, and if you think back to the fact that I'm doing this when we're fascinated by the effect of the Japanese Keiretsu or the Toyota production system, um, that whole idea that hopefully makes a, a lot of sense. Um, and it matters because companies should leverage the advantages of the countries in which they operate. There isn't any one size fits all best strategy. That has shifted over time, although I, I'd, I'd like to think it's kind of a flow, to ask how companies deal with global changes and expectations. Because I think increasingly, and, and more than in the past, it's very hard for companies to operate as if the world, the rest of the world doesn't exist. Now that that's not new news, right? But as an example, um, the European Union has been very aggressive in how it's been dealing with climate change relative to the rest of the world. 
And they're talking about imposing essentially tariffs that say if you're importing from a country that is not doing its bit to address climate change, there will be an adjustment price at the border because EU com companies are having to make investments to meet those expectations. So you can be on, in an Australian company, um, and if you do business in the EU, you're now as concerned about what's happening in the EU uh, as here. Um, Australia exports 75% of it, the coal it mines, and that's a really major industry for us. It's very easy for businesses to get fascinated by what's happening in the national capital in Canberra, but really what's happening vis-a-vis -vis carbon, uh, climate change in those big markets we export to is much more important. So it, it's really, you're starting to see these planet-wide changes around climate change, biodiversity, et cetera, and how people respond to them that are just affecting systematically almost every aspect of business in a way that I think is more demanding, more challenging, and more varied than what we had before. Now, uh, I will uh, skip a couple of questions and then come back to them. I want to talk about uh, what you are explaining right now about an evolution in uh, in research, in research streams, especially in IBM strategy. Also your personal journey, because you did not start with sustainability, ESG, climate change uh, in your PhD program or in your tenure dossier, obviously. Uh, during this evolution, what did we lose along the way? Maybe maybe we gained something along the way, uh, but uh, where is it headed to? Yeah, so, so at a personal level, um, when I was in middle school, my mom and her partner bought uh, 20 acres, eight hectares roughly, of what at the time was Illinois cornfield and turned it into a um, really an environmentally re uh, renewable homestead with passive solar and geothermal and mm. um, an awful lot of effort in, in that regard. They were also small business owners. So I actually grew up with the sustainability as a personal and as a family value and understanding some of the challenges of being a small business owner. And because I'm kind of a slow learner, I'd actually been an academic for about 10 years before I realized that these things I'm studying, uh, how firms cooperate, how firms innovate, how different institutions affect how firms do those things across countries, was really, really relevant to the challenges that were happening in sustainability. And also that sustainability was an underexplored place to study them. Hmm. So that's how it kind of came together and, and why that became part of what I was, was working on. Um, in terms of my personal evolution, uh, I think that has made things richer. I feel like I've been able to be more impactful. Uh, it has made things maybe a little harder to publish in that um, there's a lot of work, and I, I'm, I think this is at the cusp of changing, I hope so. Um, the A journals are sort of struggling, I think, to understand the relevance of climate change, you know, which I think is fairly transformational or even existential. 
Um, and so that that has been a challenge, but I'm I'm perfectly happy with that. I keep producing the best work I can and keep working on translating it to impact. Okay, about uh, the omitted variables. Obviously, you're going to talk about climate changes and omitted uh, context, at least um, in IB. Uh, what else do we uh, can you say about uh, things that we should be thinking more of? Things that we have omitted in uh, current research streams. Yeah. Well, so within sustainability, let me just really quick pick pick two things out, and, I'll, and then I'll talk about one that's not sustainability related. We talk about two kinds of risks from climate change and and other things like biodiversity loss. One's the physical risks. So what happens as extreme weather becomes more common as uh, climate changes over different places, um, as uh, sea level rate rises. And so if you think about it, this is playing out in really major ways in different countries that kind of go way back to if you looked at, you know, just the dumb old diamond of comparative advantage, so Taiwan has this thriving semiconductor industry. It produces 50% of the chips around the world. That's really water intensive. And Taiwan has faced years of historic levels of drought to the point where competition for water is actually starting to be something they have to take into account. Meanwhile, Australian company, uh, Australian agriculture in some places is having to deal with floods that it's never had before. So, you know, really fundamental aspects of where's the comparative advantage? How does that change over time? How do companies deal with those changes is coming up. Um, and the other type of change we worry about with climate change or risk is transition risks. So as society tries to deal with uh, moving to a lower carbon economy, you get changes in consumer expectation, policy, regulation, litigation um, that varies wildly across countries. And I don't think we're taking that sufficiently into account in a lot of our work. The other piece I would say that we could be doing more on is actually returning to some of the work on institutional differences and really trying to tease it apart and also just sort of challenge assumptions. Um, partnering in Japan, just to go back to some of my, my earliest work, remains really different than strategic partnering in other countries. Um, strategic partnering in China is very different than in other places. We understand that in a couple countries that we've studied or that are big enough to draw our attention, other than that, I think we tend to take the American model as the norm and assume that that's how the rest of the world partners. And I don't think it is. So I think there are some institutional variables about how cooperation happens, which you know any company involves cooperation if just buyer-supplier ties, um, that we could be going a little bit deeper on 
so I see that as a as an area where there's a lot of interesting work that could be done. Okay, uh, Glenn, you mentioned uh, difficulty of publishing in A level journals. Uh, these topics that we just talked about. Uh, well, there's no shortage of uh, editorial support for it, obviously. But what what is the biggest um, uh, hindrance, the source of hindrance. Is it the uh, reviewers? Is it uh, the questions? Is it the lack of? Um, so, what's the strategic question? So, what's the IB question type of a? Uh, what yeah. is the reason of pushback? I think it's several fold, um, and and it, you know I don't want to point at editors or reviewers or whatever because I think it, it's kind of the whole ecosystem that we need to move up. Uh, some of it is lack of familiarity um, as a field. We we haven't had to learn about some of the basics of climate change or biodiversity and its impact. So just the empirical factors may be new. Um, some of it may be that we don't have as well established accepted measures on some things as we do. And the measures that we have been using I think are widely understood to not be as strong as they might be, which is good. You know, we started with some really basic databases to pull measures out of, realized those had weaknesses, that's great. Figuring out what we use next is a bit of a challenge. Um, there isn't such an obvious theory base to go to. You know, what is the standard theoretical base for dealing with these? Um, and I think, just a um, newer things are always a little bit difficult to to get published. Just for people to be comfortable with them, um, understand the the significance, the impact. So you know, I'm I'm optimistic it will change over time. And there certainly has been some very good work done. It's just. Um, more likely I have found in the review process to get, I've never heard of that data source before, why should I believe it? Um, sometimes just why is this an interesting question? Which, if you read the newspaper to me, would seem self-evident, but it isn't to everyone. Um, and, and so I think those are the big, I think those are the biggest challenges. <laughs> Perfect. Now, uh... When you were going through the PhD program, who was your advisor? Will Mitchell. And Will Mitchell was my chair. Joanne Oxley was my co-chair. Um, uh, Mark Mizrucki from sociology was on my committee. Um, uh, Rob Franzisi from political science. And um, uh, then Mark from law. So I had a, a really great committee. And um, Anand Swaminathan who left Michigan, I think in my third year, uh, was and remains a, a really valued mentor. Okay. What was the best advice you received from, from them about your upbringing on uh, mm. Um, It doesn't matter how often you've cut 10% from a paper, you can always cut 10% more. <laughs> um, that's sort of a Will Mitchell. Um, I, I think often it from both Joanne 
and Will and others, it was the importance of writing. Uh, mm -hmm. It was the importance of really robust risk writing because so often if we're not thoughtful in our writing, we we get in our own way and prevent what would otherwise be good work from, from getting out there because we've just made it too hard for people to understand. Uh, do you write every day? Do I? Do, do you write every day? Oh, I wish I could. Um, since I set up the center, I've not been able to write every day. Um, but I would say I, you know, I, I write every week. Um, and, you know, I'd like to get back to writing every day. I think that's actually a very valuable discipline just because okay. it keeps your brain in what you're doing. How did you teach yourself to craft a paper? Uh, how did you improve your writing? I mean, Will Mitchell, I think, I'll, I'll I think... give you that one. He talks about imploding papers. Every paper has to be cut down 10%, 10%. There's no mm -hmm. end to it. It just implodes. The paper is so tight that it is not possible to take one word out without losing total yeah. meaning of three words. I would say there are um, probably three things. Uh, one is I've read an awful lot about good writing, um, whether it was um, on style by Zisner or um, there's a wonderful book by an author whose last name is Bates uh, called How to Write So You Cannot Possibly may Be Misunderstood. Um, that may be out of print, but he's actually, uh, he was a technical writer for NASA. Um, I read Strunk and White, although I don't agree with everything about uh, that they put forward. But really being very conscious about what makes good writing, things like parallelism, things like varying length of sentences, stuff like that. So um, reading good advice on writing. Um, the second was reading well-read papers and really trying to understand what, why, do, why do I perceive this as well-written, what works, what makes this so clear. Mm. Then the third piece, which I think was... Well, I, I'm actually going to have four. The third, which was really critical, was understanding the difference between writing and rewriting. You know, understanding that writing is the act of getting the ideas down on paper in the computer. Um, you don't pause to fine tune. You don't pause to look up uh, exact citations. Um, it's okay if it's a bit of a mess. It's not a brain dump, but it's closer to that. Rewriting is that really disciplined part where you go back and you structure and you throw things away and you move things around and separating those both makes the process much easier when you're writing because you know it's okay that the writing is not great. At the same time, though, it, it creates that real strong discipline in the rewriting process. So that's, that's one thing. The last thing I would mention is, and I don't know where I picked this up, um, making good use of outlines when I'm stuck. And I don't mean the kinds of outlines we learn to do in school with you know, Roman numbers and big letters and small letters, et cetera. Just writing the topic sentence for each paragraph. And you know, I might do that for the introduction. And then, and they might not even be sentences. They might be 
snippets, it might be free, uh, a phrase, a portion of a sentence. And if you've done things right, you could read just those topic sentences and get a fairly good idea of the argument and the sequence of it. And then going back and just filling in, well, what goes what what goes into that first paragraph after that topic sentence? And again, not writing out full sentences, but you know, even just sort of bullet points. And what I have found really helpful about that discipline was twofold. One, it, it, it separates writing from rewriting, like I said before, so you don't get stuck trying to craft beautiful sentences when you really should be just trying to get ideas out. But also when there are fewer words, there's no place for bad logic to hide. You know, if if there if it's really just the bullet points, et cetera, and you can't follow the story based just on those, then you know you need to restructure things. And that to me has just been a really valuable discipline um, in, in improving my writing. And I'll, I'll fall back to that whenever I'm stuck. If I'm rewriting something, I can't quite understand why it isn't working. I'll do that. So that that's a practice I've really found valuable. That was insightful. When there was actually very, very good. Uh, when there are uh, fewer words, there's no, uh, not enough place, uh, no, no place for bad ideas or bad logic to hide. That is actually very insightful. Uh, over the years and across uh, geographies, you've seen a thousand different PhD students and junior faculty. You've looked at their packages for tenure. Uh, what are some of the maybe top three uh, big mistakes that you see common across uh, mm. young colleagues? Um. I think the underlying issues are often a mix of submitting papers too soon and getting them rejected, submitting papers too late, so you're not putting enough into the hopper, and that's you know fear of perfectionism, et cetera, um, and getting too caught up in the fate of any single paper. Um, you know, we all want every paper we publish to be hugely impactful. Um, not every paper needs to be. Pa you know, a paper might be about clarifying a point that is really important, really influential for a relatively small group of scholars. Um, and if you get really caught up, put too much of your identity into a single paper and it ends up having a rough editorial journey, I think that can really sap um, a lot of the enthusiasm out of people. Um, there's a, a Winston Churchill quote that success is moving from failure to failure without loss of enthusiasm, which I really value. But I also really value a question Joe Mahoney raised when he saw that in, in my email, so he said, I wonder if the converse is true, or maybe it's the inverse. I can never keep those straight. Failure is moving from success to success with loss of enthusiasm. And I think if it if it starts to become just a, a very mechanistic thing, you know, two to three A's every three years, boom, 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 and it's no fun, it, you can tell. And I mm -hmm. think actually the 
quality of work tends to go down over time. So that's part of it, that they've either gotten a little freaked and aren't willing to put anything out there. Um, they've just gotten totally caught up in the numbers of get it out there. Or they're not willing to push until things are really ready. Where I tend to see that when I'm looking at, say, 10-year packages is um, not as lots of working papers, not enough publications. So they, they've struggled with that conversion of working papers to um, publication. And that could be because they're putting the working papers under submission too soon or too late. Um, work that is very, very scattered. And, you know, as I said, my, my, my tenure package was a huge act of post-op rationalization. But with the help of some wonderful mentors, I was able to pull together that act of rationalization. There was a story there, even if I didn't quite know what it was. And since we're about cumulative impact, um, when I look at a tenure package, a promotion package that has, you know, seven good papers in seven different areas, I, I, I really wonder about the cumulative impact that person has had. And so being able to explain what you do, why you're not each paper, but why the body of work matters is one of the challenges I think a lot of people coming up for promotion or tenure haven't fully addressed. Perfect. Uh, Glenn, for the sake of time, uh, last question. What's the question that I should have asked you about Tevins? Um, maybe what's it like being a business academic in Australia? Because um, I was there a little before I got here. Um, I knew some folks who, who were business academics in Australia at a couple different institutions who were um, being successful and enjoying themselves. Uh, and I have to say, and you know, I can only speak from being at one business school here. Um, it can be really rewarding. Um, if you can keep your social networks and your professional networks alive, which was a little tougher during COVID because uh, I couldn't get back from the conferences, obviously. Um, we've got some great colleagues here. Many of the scholars in Australia were, were trained in the US or in Europe, um, China, India, wherever. So we've got a real nice mix uh, in addition to, to folks who trained in Australia. Um, it's a nice place to live. And again, I think because it is a smaller country, there's uh, more opportunity to have impact than many institutions in the U.S. would would be able to offer, just given location relative to where business is. So I would say it's um, it can be a very good move. Um, it can be a very refreshing move, but it does come with. Um, you know, the tyranny of distance that matters even now. Glenn, uh, thank you so much for your time. I enjoyed this conversation a lot. I'm sure uh, the audience will agree with me. Is there anything uh, that you need to get out of your, uh, of your chest? 
before we, we stop recording? Uh, no, it was a fantastic opportunity to chat and good to catch up. And uh, I hope people find find my insights useful. Thank you. Thank you.